some reason that you are in a helicopter flying above my house and then you see me come out of the door and I'm carrying a set of golf clubs. Your first thought is likely that I plan to use those golf clubs to play golf. And this idea is strengthened as you fly above my car and I drive to a golf course. The logical conclusion is still that I intend to play golf. Further, I unload these clubs and I enter the clubhouse. And now even if if you see me delay for an hour or so to, to eat some lunch, something like that, I imagine you still suspect I have done all of these things with the ultimate purpose of playing some golf. Now, to be honest, I I have not played golf in years, but the point I want to make is that we assume people only go somewhere when they have a purpose for going. We know that people have a goal in traveling to a destination, even if they delay that goal for a time, such as eating lunch before hitting the links. Now, many of us, including myself, have built odd habits in our Bible reading, though. For years, I made no effort to ask questions of of a text like this in front of me. I would stop reading wherever there was a new subheading in the English Bible and assume that that particular story was over. But that would produce a very odd understanding of our text this evening. In the beginning of our text, we see what has been called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where, where he rides the donkey into the city in order to fulfill the prophecy of, of Zechariah 9.9 that the king of Israel will come into his city riding on a donkey. But many times we neglect the full account of Jesus' ministry that he enters and goes into the temple. Why does he go to the temple? And what was his goal there? And we find our answer in Mark 11. Just like you would assume I had a goal in going to the golf course, we would be right to assume Jesus had a purpose in entering the temple. Even though his goal was delayed until the next day. So the main point I want to bring across from Mark 11 tonight is that when God enters the scene, he renders judgment. But for those in Christ by faith, that judgment is in our favor, and we are accepted in God's sight. So again, when God enters the scene, he renders judgment. But for those in Christ by faith, that judgment is in our favor, and we are accepted in God's sight. And we'll see this in three points, the forward to fruit, the false fruit, and the faith fruit. So first... The forward to fruit. Throughout Mark's gospel, the question that has been being answered is, who is Jesus? Constantly, the crowds 
of people that, that gather to Him. And even the disciples are not quite able to understand really who He is. Now over time, at least the disciples come to understand that He truly is the Messiah. But they're still confused as He tells them about how the Messiah must be killed and rise from the dead. That's not what they expected their Messiah to say or to be like. They expected a Messiah who would ride triumphant into Jerusalem and then crush the enemies of God's people who they thought were the Romans. The reason for this celebration surrounding Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is because finally He is taking on some expected behavior of what people thought their Messiah would do. Again, Zechariah 9.9 predicted the King of God's people would ride into His city on a donkey. And here it is clear the people understand Jesus to be taking up that mantle and that He is fulfilling that prophecy. However, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem comes in startling contrast to the way Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He comes into the gates hailed as king and he goes out carrying the cross that would kill him. And the reason for this surprising change in how he is treated is because of what he does while he's in the city. He does not keep acting like the expected Messiah. He does not kick out the Romans but he turns his blows against the Jews themselves. And so as Jesus enters the temple at the end of verse 11, he looks around, it says, but not not like a tourist, like a judge, assessing the scene upon which he will soon render his verdict. And the consequences that come from it. And that part of the narrative sets the stage for this encounter with the fig tree and Jesus' return to cast out the money changers. When, when he looks around as he enters the hole, he lays eyes on the corruption within it and when he returns, He will complete the goal He came to do in the first place. Cleanse His temple. The, The point of this has been to show that oftentimes when God enters the scene, His purpose is to render judgment. Now, judgment is not always a bad thing. Because judgment can be rendered in your favor. If you are in the right, the judge will render judgment on your side. 
Most times in Scripture, however, because we are sinners, when God comes in judgment, it is not a pleasant thing. In Malachi 3.5, we read, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. We see here how when God comes on the scene, he renders judgment. Think again of Genesis 3.8, which takes place right after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And they heard the sound of the, they heard the sound. Think about that, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They heard the sound of God coming and hid themselves because they knew the judge was entering their presence and that they would fail the judgment test. The forward to fruit is that Jesus' arrival at the temple was not coming to sightsee in Jerusalem, but was God the Son coming to render judgment on how His people were using His temple. And that brings us to our second point, the false fruit. Jesus' triumphal entry forms forms sort of a, a prologue to the stories about Jesus and the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. So it's the prelude into these other events. The point of the the triumphal entry was truly that God had come to His temple as He'd promised to do, but to render judgment. And, And the accounts that follow that entry explain what Christ's judgment is and why He is rendering it. So a brief note on Mark's gospel and his his storytelling technique called sandwiching. And what, what this means is Mark will begin telling one story and then tell another story before he completes the ending of the first one. So you've got the beginning of a story, a second story, the end of the first one, like a sandwich. You get it. And here we see in this account of Jesus cleansing the attempt, cleansing the temple in between the beginning and end of the fig tree account. And the middle story tells us something crucial about the meaning of the whole sandwiched passage. So, so many people have read verses 12 to 14 if you turn your eyes there. And they find it troubling that it seems like Jesus reacts so viscerally to the lack of fruit on this fig tree, especially considering the text itself tells us it wasn't the season for figs. Why is he mad? They're not supposed to be there, right? 
But there's a, there is another detail that gives us pause. And that is that the fig tree is in full leaf. It's an important detail. So when, when I lived in California, uh, one of the members of our church was one of the world's leading experts in figs, which I didn't know that was a thing. If you think historians are boring, the experts in figs, that's another class of people. But so I asked him about this uh, one time when we were studying through Mark, and there are apparently breeds of fig trees that grow figs before they grow leaves, or at least the leaves come so close in the time that the, to the time that the figs grow, it appears as if the figs come before the leaves. And the point is that the full leaves on the tree mean that this tree is claiming that it has full-grown figs ready to eat. The leaves are an advertisement for fruit. If you're driving down the road and you see a cart with a sign that says fresh fruit on it, you expect to find fresh fruit in the cart. And by being in full leaf, this tree announces that it has fruit for the taking and for the eating. But this tree is false advertising. Although it makes the claim that it has full, ripe fruit, it is barren. And in light of that, it's almost startling how Mark smashes this account of the barren fig tree, falsely advertising fruit with the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. The parallel can't be missed. We have seen that Christ came to render judgment and then he renders judgment against the tree and curses it so that no one will ever again partake of its fruit. And then Christ enters the temple and cleanses it of the money changers. And yet what is even more striking is those who are indicted by this text. In verse 18, we see how it is not even those who are selling and the temple courts that are convicted by Christ's actions. But the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders of Israel, are convicted. Uh, a quick reading of, of the Gospels, any one of them, shows that Jesus has immense compassion for those sinners who are broken and repentant and who come to him for help. But it also shows that he has no patience for hypocritical leaders. And here we get a clear demonstration of why he is so vehemently opposed to these religious leaders. Notice how how Jesus does not politely ask the money changers to leave. He drives them out. 
There is a violent aspect to this. In fact, in John's account of this story, it involves Jesus making a whip to drive them out. He is not happy about this. The religious leaders and the whole setup of the temple had become like the fig tree that advertised fruit but was barren, which is exactly why Mark sandwiches these two passages together. When Jesus enters the temple, he finds the corruption of the leaders and the temple and how this area of the temple had been filled with those who had turned the house of God into a pawn shop. And while the chief priests and scribes of Israel carried themselves as the holiness, holiest in the world, in other words, they were in full leaf, on the inside they were dead and far from God. They had no fruit. They had it all together on the outside and could make every claim to bearing fruit for God. But upon closer examination, they proved to be barren and fruitless. Think of Jeremiah 8.13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. And that's the situation that Jesus finds. Although, although we'll circle back to some of these themes in the third point, there is an important thing for us to take away here. God does not take kindly to those who claim to serve His kingdom and yet prove to be fruitless. Hosea 9, verse 10 and then 16 and 17. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to Him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. God will reject those who plant themselves among His people but are fruitless. Christ came to His temple and found them to be covered in lush leaves of religiosity on the outside, but there was no love for Him. There was no fruit to be gathered. The religious leaders of God's people had covered themselves in ceremony but had no, taken no care to see that their hearts bore fruit of true love for God, true repentance over sin, or true brokenness for other people. 
And let that address us today here as well. There are, there are far too many undue criticisms made against the church that she is full of hypocrites. But we should do well to make sure that those criticisms do not strike home. There are times, I imagine, in each of our lives when we are struggling with sin. But, but rather than rather than opening up about it, we we clean ourselves up for the world, sweep it under the carpet, and make it look like it's okay. It, it can be so easy to forget. That the church is a hospital for sinners and not a museum of saints. And we start to think everyone else has it together. And usually, when we start to buy into that lie, we put on a face and we try to convince everyone that everything's okay. I've got it together too. And it is not impossible that even someone here thinks that going through the motions of going to church and sounding like a Christian is enough. And that's all that it takes. It's not difficult to build an external religion and set aside the matters of the heart. But this text shows us that Christ does not care about your leaves. And if we wave our leaves about, pretending to be full of fruit, when Christ comes to the fruitless trees, He will find He never knew us. The temple in Jerusalem adorned the nation of Israel like it was her majestic leaves. And yet, Christ found Israel barren. And so, Israel and the fig tree were left in the end cursed and without fruit or leaves. God says of spiritual adulterers in Hosea 2.12, And I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. The false fruit was then the outward claim to have inward fruit of love and service to God, which proves to be a sham. And that brings us to our third point, the faith fruit. Now, I know that discussing how Christ curses false claims to have true fruit in our lives leads to his curse can make us really uncomfortable. 
And many times we can begin to question what it means to have fruit in our lives or if we have enough fruit. The list goes on. We begin to worry about if we are the fig tree with no fruit. And I have let that discomfort sit for a few minutes on purpose because sometimes it is good that the law has its full effect to convict us of sin so that the gospel is that much sweeter. So although my second point was meant to draw our attention to how we should be convicted by our tendencies to develop a false sense of security based on external religion, fortunately, our passage does not end with a barren temple and a cursed fig tree. Look on to verse 20 and 21. And notice, as the disciples pass this cursed fig tree, they they point out to Jesus how now it's dead. Excuse me. Withered from its roots. So it's really dead. And this brings that point of the story to a head. A tree without fruit is dead. And those who would block people from true worship of God by filling this house with vending tables are likewise dead. But how does Christ respond to his disciples? In verse 22, Jesus points to them to have faith and then recounts the incredible things that can be done in faith and the blessings that we take hold of by faith. Now, I think if you read this closely, this is actually a a really odd transition on Jesus' part. One of the most interesting things about reading the Gospels is, is the transition Jesus makes in conversations when the disciples ask him something and what he says to them. Jesus, look at that dead tree. You should have faith. The striking thing about this is that Jesus forms a contrast between dead, external, fruitless religion and living by faith in God. People can be very good at building a religious facade, even ones that appear very, very godly. And what Christ says in contrast to that is not that people need to try harder or that they need to do different works to please God, but that they need to believe the gospel. That's the contrast to no fruit. And that's what the gospel calls us to do. Let go of our own works because none of them measure up anyway. None of them are good enough. And come to Christ by faith and He will give us salvation. For those who are in Adam, the law demands perfection and breathes fire and offers only damnation. That is all it will get for those who do not trust in Christ. For those in Adam, the gavel of God's courtroom has sounded and screams, guilty. The recompense is death. 
For those who would cling to the law and remain cordially attached to it and their own efforts as a way to present themselves acceptable to God, for those people, there is no hope. Not in that way. But, for those who have come to Christ by faith, Christ offers us the forgiveness of all of our sins. In Christ, we are able to look not to our own works, but to make an appeal to the cross as the reason that God should forgive us. As the Father poured out all of His wrath for all of our sins there. We can point to Christ's perfect life and point to Him as our representative who stands in heaven to plead our case before God's court. For the Christian, the gavel has also thundered. But for us, cling to Christ by faith, the verdict does not ring out guilty, but justified. Righteous. No one... No one can read the list of your offenses to God's court because someone has poured blood on it. And that is freedom. One final note about our text from Mark. Many scholars of the Bible have suggested that this place where the money changers, these, these vendors were selling their goods is in the outermost section of the temple property. This this area was set aside for Gentiles because they were not allowed to enter enter the inner courts of the temple. Only only Jews could go into the inner sections. And by setting up these sales tables in this section, the nations were blocked from coming to worship God. They prevented the world from coming to worship. But we read in Isaiah 56, Isaiah 56, 6 to 8, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God longs to bring the nations to the place of worship. And the good news, the good news is that each and every person is welcomed to come and trust in Christ by faith. God will deny no one who trusts in Jesus entrance into his kingdom. 
And Christ will drive out all of those who would try to block you. All of us here today should rejoice that we are welcomed to come to Christ. Whether you need to trust today for the first time or simply need to be refreshed in the good news of the gospel, no matter where you are, come now and drink the water of life that Christ offers to you. The life that he offers is eternal. Even though Christ came into the temple in judgment and he cursed it, just as he triumphantly entered Jerusalem, Christ will triumphantly come again at the last day. He will again render judgment and will issue curses for all those who have trusted in false religion. But for those who trust in him, For those who trust in Christ, he will give the verdict of not guilty, forgiven. He will welcome us into the new creation where we will be given a crown of life and we will be loved by him forever. And so let's go to him now and pray. Father God, we are thankful for the good news that Jesus has welcomed all of us to come to Him. And that if we put our faith in Him, we have every blessing of Your eternal kingdom. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We are cleansed. We are renewed. And we pray tonight that that message will have power in it. That You will use the words from this Gospel And it's meaning to change hearts, that you will reshape us, that that if anyone here does not trust in Christ, you will change that. That you will awaken people to faith. That you will make new worshipers of Jesus tonight. Pray that you will renew all of our hearts to be full of faith. That we will be ready to trust in Christ. That we will have deeper, stronger faith and ability to live for Him than when we came. That you will send us out into this world equipped with the news that we need to get through this week. As we get ready to sing Amazing Grace, help us to think about the, the profound nature of those words. That what we've heard is amazing grace. That although we are not deserving, Christ offers forgiveness. Although we have earned eternal torment, Christ offers paradise and life. And I pray that that will be our comfort, that that will be our joy, and you will give us new hope. And pray that you will give us opportunities this week to share that wonderful news with our friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors. And I pray that you will bless us as we seek to live for you. That you will fill us with fruits of faith, trusting in Christ, looking forward to the day when he comes for us. And we pray these things for his sake. Amen.